This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. This podcast is sponsored by viewers like you on Patreon through PayPal donations with YouTube memberships and Twitch subscriptions. To support the show, go to patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member by clicking the join button underneath any one of our videos on YouTube. Members get early access to most videos and get to participate in monthly Zoom hangouts with Mike. Here's the biggest stories we talked about this week on The Humanist Report. Enjoy the show. Happy Labor Day, friends. Rather than talking about something that's super newsworthy, I just wanted to take a moment to pump your brains with a little bit of much-needed hopium because labor is on the rise in the United States and labor activists are not taking Labor Day off. So Amazon Labor Union leader Christian Smalls led the Amazon Labor Union and Starbucks Workers United in a march up 6th Avenue towards Times Square and they're making it known that labor is not slowing down anytime soon. Take a look. Now, my favorite part about this march, for obvious reasons, is what happened when they made it to Times Square. Look at the chant that Christian Smalls led. Love that. Now, just to be 100% clear here, they're not just being edgy for the sake of being edgy. There's actual meaning behind this message. It's a meaning and a message to oligarchs that workers are no longer afraid. Because understand, at these large multinational corporations, they created this culture of fear to where discussing unions and even worker rights was taboo. Like, I remember when I worked at Walmart, on my very first day at orientation, they showed us an anti-union propaganda video. And after being appalled by that, I talked to other you know, workers, and they didn't even really know what unions were, what the points were. So they kind of just took that anti-union propaganda video at face value. And, you know, that's an anecdote, but I'm sure that that's the case for a lot of workers. But now workers are learning how powerful unions are and they're no longer afraid. Like, yes, Howard Schultz, Jeff Bezos, they're going to try to retaliate if you organize. But these workers are saying, in spite of the repercussions, we're not backing down. We're not being quiet. So to say, fuck Jeff Bezos, they're not just trying to be edgy. It's a clear message that these oligarchs don't have the power that they used to. And there's a lot of value in that statement there. I want to share a tweet from Bernie Sanders, who's basically the most pro-labor lawmaker in America, who puts things into perspective. He says, this Labor Day thank unions for weekends, eight-hour workdays, a minimum wage, paid overtime, breaks during work, the right to strike, child labor laws, workplace safety standards. Now let us grow the trade union movement and win more for workers. Now he's absolutely right. If you're wondering why we have weekends and why there are child safety standards, no more child laborers, it's because of unions. Now, thanks to propaganda, misinformation, mostly by the right, but also by a lot of neoliberal Democrats, well, support for unions went down over time. But now, because of the rise of labor in the United States, well, support for labor is the highest it's been since 1965, as Gallup points out, and now 71% of Americans approve of unions. 
And this is giant. I need you to understand that to have 71% of Americans support unions, despite the intimidation of workers who try to form unions, despite the propagandistic lies and the right-wing attacks on unions, to have 71% of Americans say we support unions, that is huge. Now, I want to talk about some more labor activity on Labor Day because there's things that you can do today to support workers. As in these times reports, Starbucks workers are hosting pro-union sip-ins where they're encouraging customers to order low-cost items or just water and then leave a really big tip for the employees. And then they're also offering conversations about union organization and worker rights and exploitation. And I absolutely love this idea. But if you don't have a Starbucks near you that's hosting this, look, do this. Go order a water and leave them a really big tip. Just let them know that you support them. I think that the best thing that you can do is to perhaps boycott these companies that are making their workers work on Labor Day. But if you want to go there and show support and leave them a, a nice tip, I guarantee you it's going to make their day. They're going to be really appreciative of that. Now, let's look at this tweet from a more perfect union. They write, all the workers at a Taco Bell in Kansas City, Missouri, walked off the job on strike today as community members cheered them on. They're protesting unsafe working conditions, low pay, and no paid sick days. Now, the video here, it's relatively short. It's like 45 seconds. I have to share this with you because this video put a giant smile on my face, and I'm sure the same is going to be true for you as well. That right there is what solidarity looks like. And that was so encouraging to see, to have the entire community come out and show support for these workers. Again, 10 years ago, even five years ago, that type of thing was not possible. And think about one of these workers in the position that they're in, right? They're treated terribly, they're exploited, but yet if they try to speak up, then they could be replaced by another worker. Like they view these employees as expendable, as robots, but, they're learning that when you bind together and when you have the community support, well, what are you going to do? If everybody is binding together, if everyone in the store is leaving on strike, nobody's there to run the store. You're taking your leverage back. And these multinational corporations hate to see it. Now, another victory for labor happened just a couple of days ago. This is from Common Dreams. The National Labor Relations Board on Thursday completely rejected Amazon's attempt to dispute and overturn a historic union victory in New York earlier this year, paving the way for the JFK 8 warehouse in Staten Island to become the company's first ever certified union shop in the United States. In a new filing, the NLRB officer who presided over weeks of virtual hearings on Amazon's election objections concluded that the corporation's protests against the union's landmark victory should be overruled in their entirety. Amazon, which used aggressive union-busting tactics and its failed attempt to fend off the JFK 8 organizing drive, said it strongly disagrees with the NLRB's decision and plans to appeal, claiming that the NLRB and the ALU improperly influenced the outcome of the election. Sure, Amazon has two weeks to file its objections. If the company's last-ditch effort fails, it will be required by federal law to begin contract negotiations with the union, which could take 
months or years. And make no mistake about it, they're going to drag their feet. But just understand what's happening here. This is comparable to Trump claiming that the election was stolen from him in 2020. These companies are doing everything, including lying and sowing doubt about this democratized vote. And it's pathetic, but thankfully they are losing. Now, here's what Christian Small said about this victory. Today is a great day for labor. Amazon Labor has officially won our objections hearing against Amazon. The hearing officer of Region 28 has officially declared that all objections are dismissed and recommended certification. Once again, we've proven that our campaign was power. Absolutely. But that's not all, because as Vice News reports, the National Labor Relations Board is demanding that Howard Schultz issue a personal apology to workers for engaging in aggressive union-busting tactics, and he has to explain in said video to all of his employees what their rights are. This comes after the National Labor Relations Board found in a complaint filed on Wednesday that the company is unlawfully withholding benefits from employees in unionized or unionizing stores. It alleges that Schultz, who is worth roughly $4 billion, threatened employees and told them it would be futile to side with the union on several occasions, including during a video call to all U.S. employees in a corporate weekly update and in a quarter to earnings call, according to a statement from the NLRB. It also alleges that the company set up a benefits program that would be exclusive to non-unionized workers that would include higher pay, faster sick time accrual, increased training opportunities, and more. Now, we focused a lot on Amazon and Starbucks, but I just want to stress here that this is a mass movement taking place at numerous corporations across the country. And in the event a CEO hasn't seen any stores organize in their company, well, it's only a matter of time. And currently, they're shitting their pants because they know that if stores successfully organize at Starbucks, if warehouses successfully continue to organize at Amazon, well, it's only a matter of time before their workers see that and are galvanized by said labor activity and they form unions there as well. And I mean, it's already been a pretty difficult journey for people like Howard Schultz, who's trying everything that he possibly can to stop Starbucks stores from organizing. But the problem is that since they formed their first union late last year, more than 100 Starbucks locations have organized. So you see the desperation growing. And sure, they're union busting and they're pulling out every trick in the book. But even though that's terrible, it's a sign that these workers are winning. They wouldn't be doing this if they weren't terrified right now. So today on Labor Day, do what you can to support workers. That means that if you have a store that's trying to form a union, support those workers, stand in solidarity with them, and don't shop at that location in the events those workers are getting penalized. Never cross the picket line, and in the event you go to a store today, a Starbucks or a restaurant, tip those workers extra well because they deserve it. Workers make this country, workers built this country, and it's about time that they take the power back and have leverage for once and all, uh, once and for all over their employers. So, that's what I want to leave you with on Labor Day. Not some sad story about how we're all screwed, but a little bit of hopium because this is the one sign that gives me hope for the future of this country. Workers across this country standing up and demanding rights. I've long maintained that CNN has always been trash. And as bad as it's always been, it's about to get a lot worse. In fact, it's already getting worse because they're shamelessly trying to shift to the right in order to pander to Donald Trump supporters, all while claiming that this current move is them just trying to be more impartial and objective. Mm, we'll see about that.
So I'll give you a couple of examples, but first of all, just ask yourself why they're doing this. I think that should be obvious. CNN is a news organization, perhaps aesthetically, but this is a business first and foremost. So they're going to do what makes them the most money. And the way that they get more money is to attract more eyeballs to the screen. So if they are perceived to be a Democrat partisan outlet, well then that's gonna turn off Republicans. So in order to cast the widest net, and get the best advertisers, the most advertising dollars, you have to get the most eyeballs. So that's what they're trying to do. So let's look at their behavior as of late. As you all know, back in August, the network announced that they canceled reliable sources with liberal host Brian Stelter. And then out of the blue, John Harwood announced on September 2nd that that was his last day at CNN, conspicuously after calling Donald Trump a demagogue in a segment where he was objectively speaking the truth about Donald Trump in response to a speech that Biden gave about Trump and the Republicans' attacks on democracy. Let's watch. Of course, it was a political speech. We're in a midterm re-election year. Uh, the issues that he's talking about are inherently political. But I think it's also important to say that the core point he made in that political speech about a threat to democracy is true. Now, that's something that's not easy for us as journalists to say. We're brought up to believe there's two uh, different political parties with different uh, points of view and we don't take sides in honest disagreements between them but that's not what we're talking about these are not honest disagreements the republican party right now is led by a dishonest demagogue many many republicans are rallying behind his lies about the 2020 election and other things as well and a significant portion or a uh, sufficient portion uh, of the constituency that they're leading attacked the capitol on january 6th violently by uh, offering pardons or suggesting pardons for those people who violently attacked the Capitol, uh, which you've been pointing out uh, numerous times this morning, Donald Trump made Joe Biden's point for him. Now, he made a good distinction there between objectivity and neutrality. Objectivity is simply the objective facts about reality, whereas neutrality is trying to Play it safe. Ride the line right down the middle. So if Republicans say one thing, Democrats say the other thing, then the truth is going to be somewhere in the middle. Or at least that's where you position yourself if you want to be neutral. And you can understand why that's an issue, because if Republicans say that climate change isn't real, but Democrats say it is real, then you have to pretend as if this non-debatable issue is debatable. And that's bad. That's a problem. But, you know, it is the case that the Hollywood Reporter states that he actually found out last month, according to an anonymous source, that he was going to leave. So maybe he's not leaving for calling Trump a demagogue. Maybe him leaving is just a coincidence. Perhaps him making that claim about Donald Trump, which was objectively true, is just him feeling emboldened because what do you have to lose since you're leaving, uh, leaving anyway? Or maybe he's leaving because he said things like that frequently. But either way, sure, let's claim that that's a coincidence for argument's sake. CNN has done other things that are extremely questionable, which further prove that they are trying to pander to the right. But before we get to that, let's talk about the changes that they're making. As ABC News reports, the news network now under the Warner Discovery corporate banner and led since spring by CNN Worldwide chairman Chris Licht is trying to inject more balance into its programming and become less radioactive to Republicans. How and whether that can be accomplished remains a mystery. Since Licht took over, morning anchor Brianna Keller's occasional takedowns of Fox coverage have disappeared. Although Licht hasn't commented publicly on Stelter's exit, the media reporter's criticism of Fox News 
news was a regular feature of reliable sources. It received little notice at the time, but cable news executive John Malone, now a member of the Warner Discovery Board of Directors, said in a CNBC interview last November that I would like to see CNN evolve back to the kind of journalism it started with and actually have journalists which would be unique and refreshing. Similarly, Warner Discovery President and CEO David Zaslov said at a company town hall in April that CNN should set itself apart from a cable news industry that is dominated by advocacy networks. CNN needs to be about reporting truth and facts, he said. Quote, if we get that, we can have a civilized society, said Zaslav, who appointed Licht, and without it, if it all becomes advocacy, we don't have a civilized society. Now, we'll come back to Brianna Keller here in a moment because they point out how all of a sudden she's not doing these takedowns of Fox News. But that doesn't sound bad at face value, right? But these corporate executives are not talking about prioritizing truth and reality and truth and objectivity seriously. Like, they're not taking that seriously. What they're referring to here is neutrality. They don't want to make it seem as if they favor Democrats more than Republicans. But the problem is you can't do that while remaining objective. For example, for Trump to claim that the election was stolen, well, to say, oh, well, maybe, you know, some, some people say it's stolen, some people say it's not. But who cares what some people say? What are the facts? And the facts remain that Trump is a liar and the election was not stolen. So in order to be neutral in this instance, you have to, you have to pay lip service to absurd ideas. And they're not just trying to be impartial. They're actually pandering to Trump supporters. Case in point, the new CNN CEO, Chris Licht, wants anchors to stop calling Trump's election lies the big lie because apparently that particular term is associated with Democratic Party partisan framing. Even though I don't think that that's necessarily true, most people colloquially refer to his election lies as the big lie. So even though it's a little bit subtle here, this primes people to think about the big lie as just another lie from an obviously dishonest president and not a lie that stands out from all of his other lies, a lie that's so devastating to democracy that it could actually end democracy in the United States. I mean, just that small change by saying we'll call it Trump's election lies instead of the big lie, that does make a difference. And since the big lie is a little bit more divisive, well, again, they want to attract right-wingers. So the way that they do that is by pandering to them. But I've got some more examples to you, and let's get to Brianna Keller, because now she is making it very clear that um, she's falling in line. So last week, she clutched her pearls over Biden's speech because of the optics of him criticizing fascist Republicans while two Marines stood in the background. I mean, give me a break, right? Now, she went on to do a five-minute segment criticizing Biden over the optics of that with the chyron that read, Biden faces criticism over Marines in backdrop of speech, while not mentioning that she's the one who was the loudest in criticizing him for this. But as others on Twitter pointed out, she didn't call out the optics when Trump accused members of the squad of hating America with, you guessed it, two Marines standing beside him. So Brianna has very clearly fallen in line in order to keep her job. Furthermore, they're now running these hysterical articles over Hunter Biden's laptop, just like Fox News. And then there's headlines like this, quote, when wokeness comes to Middle Earth, why some say diverse casting ruins the new Lord of the Rings series. Now, this article, if you read it, tries to both sides the story by portraying the people opposed to diverse casting as good faith arguers simply opposed to the wolkification of classic stories rather than the racist fuckheads that they are. But if you were to actually call out this obvious racism for what it is, well then, you're turning off a lot of Republicans who they want to uh, appeal to because, again, 
they want more money. And it seems to be working because they're now seemingly getting approval from Daddy Trump. He tweeted on social media that Fox News is uh, apparently pushing the Democratic Party's agenda now. That's hilariously stupid. Adding that if low-rating CNN ever went conservative, they would be an absolute goldmine and I would help them do so. And he's right about that. Hence the reason why they're doing this. They're smart. This new CEO at CNN, these new executives know that if you simply appeal to one party or centrists, there's less eyeballs there, less revenue as a result. So again, the way that you can cast the largest net and get the most money is by pandering to Republicans now. But the problem is that in trying to be neutral and sit right between Democrats and Republicans, it is impossible for you to prioritize truth and objective reality because Republicans have lost their fucking minds. They're claiming that the election was stolen, that vaccines don't work. I mean, how many lies are they going to say that will force CNN now to take this neutral stance? Well, you know, some people say that the vaccines are poisonous, but scientists say that the vaccines are safe and effective when it comes to COVID-19 vaccines. I mean, to do this, it's inherently right wing because to pay lip service to their lies under the guise of being neutral, you simply can't be an impartial, objective news organization. So even if they like to portray themselves as a news organization, always remember that first and foremost, CNN is a business with a fiduciary responsibility to increase shareholder value. So they're going to do what pads their pockets. And this new CEO, even though the last one was shitty, is just trying to do what brings in the most amount of revenue. and. That is to become more right wing. And if they go straight up Fox News, well, that could be even more lucrative for them. So we don't necessarily know where they're going to go with this fully. We should not believe them when they say they're just trying to be more impartial and nonpartisan. No, that's not what they're trying to do. And this is really only the beginning. And we've seen how ridiculous they look, the ridiculous articles, the ridiculous both sidesing that they're trying to do. So, I mean, if you haven't already, been boycotting CNN, you probably should now because what they're doing here is trying to be Fox News light and that's damaging to the country, okay? I'm not saying that they have to be the propaganda arm of the Democratic Party like MSNBC effectively is. But what I am saying is that they do not have a right to claim that they're being impartial and objective if they're paying lip service to lies spread by the Republican Party. If you wanna be neutral, claim that you're neutral right? If you're going to position yourself right in between Democrats and Republicans on every single issue, I mean, that's fine, but you have to own it. You don't get to pretend as if being neutral is comparable to being objective because those are two very, very different things. But that's what CNN is doing, and it's because that's what they believe is going to bring in the big bucks. But hopefully this just leads to them imploding because Republicans already distrust CNN. So, I don't know if they're going to be won back by this move, but what I do know is that CNN is going to lose a lot of loyal viewers who are liberal who tune into CNN, so we'll just have to wait and see. Either way, fuck CNN. They've always been trash, but with this new CEO, they're even more trash than before, which is almost impressive because this network has never done a good job. I mean, I, I want to single out some reporters who do objective reporting, but when it comes to like the commentator side, you know, they they're always disproportionately 
arguing in favor of corporate America and their interests. They always have a pro-corporate bias, which is inherently right-wing, which may shock people. But I mean, think about why this is. Again, it goes back to their values and what they do. They are not a news organization first and foremost. This is a business. So they're not going to talk about how single-payer healthcare saves lives when that could potentially you know, uh, outrage some of their insu insurance industry donors. They're not going to talk about all of the uh, labor violations, or at least not frequently, that Amazon is doing because then Amazon might not want to advertise on CNN. So they're going to go for what makes them money. That's just the easiest explanation here. So if you're wondering why they're worse than before, well, it's because they're prioritizing the business side of things more than before, as if they weren't already doing that. But obviously it's worse now than it was before. So yeah, we'll leave that there. There's a school in Texas that someone identified, you ready for this, for a cat, and they made them put out a litter box. I thought it was something from The Onion. Absolutely true. true. Wow. That is because our principals don't stand up anymore. Right. You know, back my parents were in education, so if I, that would have been brought up, they would have been slapped the hell the out, of that, anti, out of the classroom. Anti-traditionalism yeah. that's happening right now is it, on, on every level, it seems like. No, yeah. they're embracing lies. I mean, literally embracing lies. Okay, if some student wants to pretend like a cat and use a litter box after school, that's their prerogative, whatever. But no, the school and the school resources and the other students and teachers should not have to be uh, put through that because it's a lie. Yeah. And, and we have to reject them. It's not about people's feelings. It's about the truth yeah. and rejecting the lies. And we have to stand up. They're embracing lies, Marjorie Green claims, after embracing one of the dumbest lies imaginable. And contrary to what they said in that video, that is not happening. It's been thoroughly debunked. And before we get to the origins of that particular dumb conspiracy theory that blew up in right-wing circles, just ask yourself for a moment, if somebody brought this information to you and they claimed with a straight face that students at schools were shitting in litter boxes, how would you react? Perhaps if you're being polite, you would think, oh, okay, interesting. Sounds weird. I'll have to look into that. But would you just like believe it? Odds are you wouldn't because you're not as gullible as most right-wingers. But right-wingers heard that story and they thought, oh, yeah, that sounds pretty plausible. Kids shitting in litter boxes at schools. Yeah, that's probably happening. And they ran with it. So I've got two things to say about this story. First of all, don't forget to redeem your free Trump book at freetrumpbook.com. Second of all, notice how Marjorie Taylor Greene was seemingly more open-minded to the prospect of kids using litter boxes at school than she is to trans people because she said oh well that's their prerogative i mean i agree sure i mean if your kid wants to shit in the litter box that's probably not very sanitary but like it doesn't really affect me so i genuinely don't care but yet there's no demand to have this banned i mean marjorie taylor green she created legislation to erase trans students out of existence to make it so that way kids who are receiving gender-affirming care well, um, they have to detransition. But yeah, when it comes to cat kids, she's like, no, we don't have to ban that. That's perfectly fine. Interesting. Now, there's a reason why I'm bringing up trans people, and this is because this whole myth stems from hysteria over trans people, and it's honestly semi-based in the one joke that right-wingers have, which is, oh, what's that? A boy can identify as a girl? Can I identify as anything that I want to? Can I identify as an Apache attack helicopter? So, you know, this is kind of the logical extension of that. Oh, well, what's that? If boys can now identify as girls, I guess that kids can identify as cats. So that's where we're at. 
in American political discourse, where to fearmonger over trans rights, you have to make it seem as if it's a slippery slope. But if your kid is trans, then that's going to lead to kids identifying as cats and dogs and cars and fill in the blanks. Now, this lie originated from a December 2021, 20, uh, on December 21st, a school board meeting at the Central Michigan School District. Um, and one person in particular brings this up based on something that she heard, cites no evidence, but she then proceeds to extrapolate. And after she said this, it blew up. So take a look. This is where the conspiracy theory originated. Yesterday, I heard something um, and I was stunned. And today I am equally stunned and a little bit upset. Well, not a little bit, a lot of bit upset, furious. I, don't, I would even use that word, but um, I want to talk to about the fact that, and I know this is going on nationwide, so it is not just for your, for this board, but our community needs to understand that the agenda that is being pushed through our schools is um, just my opinion, but somewhat nefarious when it comes to some of the um, activities. So let's talk about fury, furries. <laughs> it was addressed by a child uh, a couple months ago that they are put in an environment where there are kids that are that identify as a furry, a cat or a dog, whatever. And so yesterday I heard that at least one of our schools in our town has a in one of the unisex bathrooms a litter box for the kids that identify as cats. And um, I am really disturbed by that. And I, I will do some more investigation on that. I know it's going on nationwide. I know it is. It's part of the agenda that's being pushed. I don't, I don't even want to understand it. But I think that people need to be aware of it because I am really upset as a parent that my child is put in an environment like that. And, um, you know, I'm all for creativity and imagination. But when someone lives in a fantasy world and expects other people to go along with it, I have a problem with that. So I'm just putting that out there. I will investigate more. And just like that, a new conspiracy theory was born. This is how gullible conservatives are. You can literally just say something and they'll run with it. Doesn't matter what it is. Oh, kids in schools nowadays, they're like playing this game where they take a turd and they try to throw it into their friends' mouths. Um, and it's disgusting. Like, this is the agenda that's being pushed by the left. Like, you could just say that and they literally believe it because that's how fucking gullible these people are. But not only did she hear that um, they were putting litter boxes or they put a litter box in one particular school in said district in a unisex bathroom, but she then ext extrapolated and said, well, you know, this is happening all across the country because this is part of their agenda. And because this imbecile said that, well, it began to blow up. The Midland Public School channel on YouTube usually gets no more than a couple hundred views per video, but this particular board meeting got over 91,000 views after her claim went viral, and it really blew up once the far-right Twitter hate account libs of TikTok picked it up and amplified it, which then led to Republican politicians sharing it. So Ms. Sean Maddock, the co-chair of Michigan's Republican State Party, shared the video on Facebook after it was shared by a community member who called that lady's evidence-free claim shocking, presumably 
presumably signaling that he believed it. And in response to that video, a Republican state house candidate in Texas then took that claim, not only ran with it, but broadened out the conspiracy. Her name is Michelle Evans, and here's what she said in response to that video. Cafeterias are being lowered in certain Round Rock middle and high schools to allow furries to more easily eat without utensils or their hands, i.e. like a dog eats from a bowl. Now, where'd that claim come from? Nowhere, she pulled it out of her ass just like the mom that showed up to that school board meeting did in December 21st of 2021. But that's not all, because Republican lawmaker in the state of Nebraska, he echoed that same conspiracy on television. Take a look at what he had to say. And I'm a little shocked, I guess is what I would put it. It's called something called furries. If you don't know what furries are, it's where school children dress up as animals, cats or dogs, during the school day, they meow and they bark, and they interact with their school, with the teachers in that in this fashion. And now schools are wanting to put litter boxes in the schools for these children to use. How is this sanitary? I'm gonna have a discussion with CEO Smith about this. This is something I think, how can schools allow this to happen? I think it's very disruptive within the school system. I think it's very disruptive within the classes. I even heard from one person here recently said that a, that a, that a student identified as a cat and wanted a litter box, and the school didn't provide the litter box, so the student went ahead and defecated on the floor. Really? Really? School administrators, what is going on? Nebraska Department of Education, what is going on? State Board of Education, what is going on? If some kids can't wear American flag to walk through the school on their shirt, and you keep them out of school, and you kick them out of school, but it's okay if, if they wear a cat costume, and that's fine, and you have a litter box for them, and that's fine, so notice how it's like a bad game of telephone where it starts with this conspiracy about them putting litter boxes in unisex bathrooms and then it somehow lands on, oh, well, when they don't put the litter boxes in these bathrooms, students then shit on the floor. And where are they getting all of this? They're completely fabricating it. Now, that lawmaker, after looking like an imbecile, was forced to apologize, but the school district had to come out and dispel that myth. And since this blew up around the country, other school districts had to do the same thing. The Carroll County School District in Iowa had to dispel this rumor after it spread there. The Wanakee Community School District had to debunk the claim as well. Now, of course, the Midland superintendent, where this claim originally spread, had to come out and debunk this claim, saying, no, we're not putting litter boxes in the bathrooms, you fucking morons. Not his words, but mine. As Natalie Pate of the Statesman Journal explains, Midland Superintendent Michael Shero rejected the claim outright in an email sent January 20th to parents, staff, and community members. Let me be clear, there is no truth whatsoever to this false statement slash accusation. There have never been litter boxes with MPS schools, he wrote. It is such a source of disappointment that I felt the necessity to communicate this message to you, right? Across the country from New York to Iowa and Texas, the same rumors swept through 
districts this spring. The New York Times, USA Today, PolitiFact, Reuters, and Snopes, among other publications, wrote articles confirming the claims were unfounded. Yet, it seems the rumor has reached Oregon, with recent gossip asserting Salem-Kaiser Public Schools officials approved a student's request to self-identify as a cat and allowed litter boxes in the restrooms of Sprague High School. District officials confirmed to the Statesman Journal that the claims are categorically false. And just to be clear, this is the third different time that this conspiracy theory has popped up. So now, as of September, the start of the new school year, it's a rumor that's spreading around Oregon school districts. And it presumably got its second life back in spring, as the article states, presumably because of this viral post on Facebook where this right-wing mom is likely parroting the same dumb shit that she heard from the lady at the original school board meeting at the Midland School Board District back in December of 2021. So it's like conspiracy theory whack-a-mole, where you have this original claim it gets debunked and then somebody sees that presumably for the first time they spread it it goes viral again perhaps people who learn that it was false see that and think oh well i thought this was fake i guess it really is real because somebody is saying that they heard it too so it's a game of telephone where people parrot dumb fake bullshit and then it leads to school officials having to come out and take time out of their day to say no we don't have litter boxes in the bathrooms you can check look at the bathrooms they're shitting in toilets like normal human beings. But again, let's go back to why this is so prevalent. It's because this is one way that they can uh, be hysterical and fearmonger over trans rights. Because as I said, if, you know, they can believe or these parents end up believing that students are now identifying as cats and shitting in litter boxes, then that points the finger at trans students. Oh, well, it's because of them. Since your daughter is now claiming that she's a boy well my kid might think that they're a cat and i don't want my kid to you know come out as a cat because that's definitely a thing that's happening so because of trans people this is now happening because of trans people other bad things are happening it's a blame game and this is a common thing that we see when the majority who's against civil rights tries to demonize the marginalized minority but of course, you know, somebody like Marjorie Taylor Greene, completely gullible with no common sense whatsoever, is going to believe this and not even question for a second. Wait a second. Where's your evidence? Where'd this come from? She just buys it and says, they're embracing lies. Of course, not realizing the irony from this former QAnon supporter, emphasis on the former, because who knows? But either way, I mean, if Republicans are this gullible, that's a problem for the country. Sure, we can make fun of them and dunk on them. That's fine. But you can't be this gullible and have society be healthy, right? If they can believe something as stupid as this, they could believe anything. More dangerous lies. This is how we got to this point where most of the Republican Party doesn't believe that the election in 2020 was fair. So here we are where the right in this country will believe anything. And there's just no standard for evidence, no scrutiny whatsoever. They just hear someone say it and they run with it and it blows up. We have to find some way to educate these people, give them media literacy training, just have them develop a better bullshit detector. But until that's the case, if that's even possible, we're going to continue to see stories like this and they're probably going to get even dumber.
In his first interview with the press since he was ordered to pay $49.3 million in damages to the families of Sandy Hook victims who he defamed, Alex Jones sat down for an interview with Andrew Callahan of Channel 5 News. And unlike the interview that he had with Glenn Greenwald, Andrew Callahan actually asked him real questions. And as a result, Alex Jones lost his mind. Take a look. Do you feel responsible for what happened to the Sandy Hook families? Yes, I killed the children. But beyond that... I no, mean, I mean, I went in that school... I pulled a gun out and I shot every one of them myself. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm guilty. It's true. No, but I mean, no, no. Let's just. Do I feel responsible that someone on on played shoot 'em up video games on a bunch of drugs, went and killed a bunch of kids, and then the internet questioned it and I covered that? No, I don't feel responsible, and I don't apologize anymore. I'm done. Mm -hmm. I don't apologize. I killed the kids. Was there a definitive? I, no, I killed them. I killed him. You didn't kill him. No, I did. No, you didn't. No, everybody said, no, no. I killed him. I killed him. I already admit it. I did it. I killed him. I'm the bad guy. I'm the devil. Get rid of the First Amendment. Can we move on to other topics? I don't think I killed him. First Amendment killed him. Second, get rid of the Second Amendment. Get rid of the First Amendment. They're bad. They killed the kids too. George Washington killed him. Jesus killed him. The whole, we should rename the whole planet Sandy Hook. Everything, there should be holidays. We should bow five times a day to, to New Haven, Connecticut for the kids that died. Every American's to blame. Every gun owner's to blame. I'm to blame. We are all guilty to Bloomberg and Soros. Turn our guns in, turn our guns in. I know, I did it, I killed them. I killed them, I killed them. I, I know, I killed them. So I'm done talking about it. Okay. I killed them. Okay. I mean, I would say that that's unbelievable just because generally speaking, you don't really see most functioning adults behave in that way, but it's Alex Jones. So it's totally predictable. But like the question that Andrew asked was completely reasonable. Do you feel responsible for what happened to the Sandy Hook families? Now, he's very clearly asking, do you feel responsible for the harassment that they received after you lied about them, claimed that that was a false flag? and they were paid actors and their children weren't really dead like do you feel responsible for what your viewers did in harassing them and terrorizing them but of course he conflates that with the kids dying itself saying oh yeah i did it uh, i killed the children that's not what he's asking and you know that that's not what he's asking because later on he says do i feel responsible that someone else played shoot 'em up video games of course blaming video games uh did a bunch of drugs went and killed a bunch of kids and then the internet questioned it and then i covered that no i don't feel responsible so he knows the question that andrew was asking he just chose to throw a little bit of a temper tantrum but he then answered the question and his answer was no i don't feel responsible that my viewers harassed this individual after I used my massive platform to spread lies about this family, these mul multiple families. It's just, this is Alex Jones for you. He will never take responsibility, never. He is a petulant child, and even when he's held accountable, he is incapable of learning from his actions. It's just, it's embarrassing. And the worst part about this is he tried to portray himself as the victim just because Andrew asked that question automatically. Oh, no, you're basically blaming me for the deaths of these children. First of all, he's not doing that. But you're pretending to be the victim because of a fucking question. Imagine what you put these families through. The Posner family, for example, they had to move seven different times because your viewers, after you defamed these families, they kept finding them, kept harassing the Posner family. 
Now, because he wants to portray himself as the victim, let me just remind everyone what Alex Jones did to these families after they suffered one of the most tragic things that parents can go through. As the Associated Press reports, Jones, who has portrayed the lawsuit as an attack on his First Amendment rights, conceded during the trial that the attack was 100% real and that he was wrong to have lied about it. But Heslin and Lewis told jurors that an apology won't suffice and has called on them to make Jones pay for the years of suffering he has put them and others Sandy Hook families through. The parents told jurors about how they've endured a decade of trauma inflicted first by the murder of their son and what followed. Gunshots fired at a home, online and phone threats, and harassment on the street by strangers. They said the threats and harassment were all fueled by Jones and his conspiracy theory spread to his followers via his website Infowars. A forensic psychiatrist testified that the parents suffer from complex post-traumatic stress disorder inflicted by ongoing trauma similar to what might be experienced by a soldier at war or a child abuse victim. But no, 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 it's Alex Jones who's the real victim, not these families who his viewers harassed after he defamed them. I mean, imagine the anguish and mental trauma that you deal with losing a child, only to then develop PTSD because of the harassment that you receive after being accused that you were faking the death of your child. It's just... What he did is so disgusting and gross, you really, you can't calculate it. Like, like he's ordered to pay $49.3 million, but that can never make up the damage that he caused to these families. It's truly disgusting. Now, as you're going to see here, Andrew Callahan is going to ask him about the lawsuit. And that's when he calls it quits. He storms out of the interview. And then a producer, I'm assuming for Alex Jones, um kind of scolds him because of the dumb shit that he said. Just just take a look. Can we talk about the trial at all? There's nothing to talk about. Let me tell you, I don't know if I can do this interview right now. <laughs> you liking it? I don't think you should keep doing that. <laughs> what? Dude, I murdered those children. I did. I killed him myself. Still not a funny thing to say. I get the point, but it's just like, fuck, man. Fuck it. I don't give a fuck, dude. I'm farming. I'm giving a fuck right now. I understand. What do you even say to that? What do you even say to that? This is a child who we're dealing with here. I mean, he can't have a normal sit-down interview unless he's getting softballs thrown at him, as Glenn Greenwald did. Then he'll stay for the interview. But if you're going to actually ask him real questions, then he can't take the heat. So he storms off. Now, the full interview is 20 minutes. And if you want to watch it, I'll link you to the Patreon of Channel 5. I'm not sure if they're going to uh, release this eventually, unlock it. But either way, if you want to watch the full thing, I'll link to that down below. It's their Patreon page. And they're a great channel. So, you know, if you support them, that's a great decision. Um, but just, like, imagine being asked a question and storming off. Andrew Callahan, I've seen his interviews before and he's really clever. He'll ask a really open-ended question and let the interviewee kind of just talk and talk and talk. And then once he sees an opportunity, he'll push back or ask more questions, which kind of leads to them revealing their insidious, idiotic views. And it's a really interesting way that he kind of disarms them and gets them to say terrible things. So it's good, hard-hitting interviews that Andrew Callahan does. But like even just starting off simple, letting Alex Jones answer in an open-ended way, hey, can we talk about the interview? He can't take it. It's just 
what do you say? What do you say? Um, now, the reason why Alex Jones is so irritable is because he's in deep shit. Okay, so I want to share an interview that aired on TYT just a couple of days after the lawsuit took place last month with the attorney for the Sandy Hook families, Mark Bankston, and he's going to explain specifically why Alex Jones is very touchy about this particular subject when it comes to the lawsuit. So sure. uh, you had an incredible economist on the stand. I thought his testimony was excellent. He got into the nitty gritty of the finances behind Alex Jones and all of his multiple LLCs. Uh, we learned through that that Alex Jones had withdrawn um, about $62 million uh, for himself in 2021. Uh, and there's questions about where that money went. It seems like he's trying to hide some of his assets. And you had said something that I'm, I'm trying to understand a little better. You had mentioned that if he does go through with bankruptcy, it could actually make the compensatory damages cap moot. And I want to understand how that works. Sure, and I don't think moot is quite the right word. So let me walk this through this because a lot of people are asking about this too. In Texas, there is a $750,000 cap per cause of action and defendant for punitive damages added on to a, a verdict for mental anguish. In this case, there are three causes of action. And there are two defendants per each cause of action. So that adds up to an additional $4.5 million that can be put on this cap. Well, along with the million and a half sanctions that was already awarded to these plaintiffs, we're talking just about $10 million judgment that they would seek if the cap is applied. Now, clearly we can appeal that cap and there may have been never a better case to do that under than this case right here to challenge it on due process grounds. But instead of spending years in the appellate court, what most likely is going to happen is all of these claims are gonna be kicked into this bankruptcy court and they're gonna to have to be valued there. And then because the plaintiff has the ability to maybe appeal that and potentially win, that contingency will need to be factored in, baked into the valuation of the case in the bankruptcy court. And as I said, you're gonna be seeing multiple plaintiffs being bringing these suits. You've got the Lafferty plaintiffs coming in, that's nine of them there. Two more of my clients are gonna be bringing another suit after that. Also, there's a young man who was misidentified as the Parkland shooter. He has a claim that I have him representing against Jones. So when all of these plaintiffs finally end up in the bankruptcy court, they're just gonna be carving up the pie. And, and I think from what we've seen, um, there's a good chance that there's not gonna be enough for everybody's verdict, that everybody's gonna to have to prorate these out anyway. Um, but what it's gonna be is the end of Infowars when that happens. Interestingly enough, most defendants would use that bankruptcy escape hatch as some sort of protection over themselves. In this case, I think I predict it's gonna go the exact opposite. Mr. Jones is gonna be subjected to a level of financial scrutiny over his transactions that he has never seen before. And considering what we know has gone down in that courtroom and their ability to tell the truth on the stand there, as well as we know that we now have his text messages, I don't think any of that's gonna go very well, particularly once federal receivers are involved. And that right there is why this is such a soft spot for Alex Jones. He may actually lose it all, lose Infowars because of his own stupidity. He prioritized, you know, clicks and views and conspiracy theories over people's lives. They didn't even think about the real world impact that his lies had on families. And now he's paying the consequences. It's not the families who are making him the victim because they're choosing to sue after he defamed them. It's him for doing what he did to them. I mean, early on in life, most of us learn that actions have consequences. And some people, Alex Jones, Donald Trump, a number of folks, they just, they never actually have to deal with the ramifications of their bad actions, deal with the bad things that they do to people. But he's having to deal with that. He's having to lie in the bed that he made for himself. And this is what that's causing him to be, a complete 
Loon, even more so than usual, who can't even do a simple interview, answer basic questions, storming off of interviews, melting down. It's just, it's embarrassing. But I mean, I'm glad that this is how he's coping because you can tell he's not having a fun time. And I just want him to experience even a fraction of what he put the families of Sandy Hook through. And I said this before, I'll say it again. I hope that he loses everything. I hope that he loses InfoWars because this is an individual who is bad. Him having that big of a platform is objectively bad for the United States and for the world. So if he loses InfoWars, that is a net good for humanity. So I hope that everyone else who is bringing lawsuits forward is successful. And yeah, I hope that he just fades into obscurity because that will be better off for everyone. And based on, you know, how stressed out he is because of this lawsuit, it seems like it'd be better for him as well. So go away, Alex Jones. We don't need you. You offer nothing but conspiracy theories and pain and just fuck off forever. Like what a piece of shit, like watching him storm out during that interview. Like I just thought to myself, the audacity of this motherfucker who spent so much time defaming these families and now when he just faces a little bit of scrutiny he can't take it what a fucking piece of shit republicans definitely know that they are in trouble when it comes to women voters why well i mean take a guess it's because of their extremism with regard to the issue of abortion and they made matters exponentially worse when after the dobbs decision was announced they all in unison started squawking about how if they take back power they would like to institute a federal abortion ban so they broadcasted to women everywhere that they want them to be second-class citizens indefinitely because they don't want this decision to be overruled. They want to make it so that way women everywhere do not have access to their own reproductive autonomy. And it's hurting them. And they know it's hurting them. So it's led to two separate strategies. First is a lot of them backtracking when it comes to their formerly extremist views on abortion. And another, probably my favorite, is them trotting out their wives to, I guess, prove that they don't hate women because if they have a wife and their wife loves them and they love their wife, then checkmate libs, they don't hate women. I mean, they just think that they shouldn't have bodily autonomy and should be reduced to second-class citizens effectively, but they don't hate women. So let's get into this article from Politico that kind of breaks this down because they know, consultants know, GOP candidates know, they are fucked if they don't turn things around. Republicans this election cycle thought they had finally achieved a breakthrough with suburban women after years of losing support. Now, as the primary season has all but ended, the GOP is back where it once was, appealing directly to skeptical female voters, the women whose support will make or break the party's drive to retake the Senate majority. A sure sign, one after the other, Republican nominees in top Senate battlegrounds have softened, backpedaled, and sought to clarify their abortion positions after the Supreme Court Dobbs decision that overturned Roe v. Wade. Another is that male candidates have begun putting their wives in front of the camera to speak directly to voters in new television ads. Those ads, along with public and internal polling data, suggest that the GOP struggle to attract women voters may turn out to be the biggest obstacle standing between the party and a potential Senate majority in 2023. A Wall Street Journal poll released Thursday showed that abortion was the single most likely issue to drive respondents to vote this fall above inflation, and 52% of white suburban women say they would support a Democratic candidate in the election, the poll found, while only 40% said they would vote for the Republican. Quote, I'm convinced that, based on numbers we have, Republicans have to make some kind of leap on the abortion issue, said Chuck Coughlin, an Arizona-based GOP strategist, because they're getting killed among women. And rightfully so. It's almost like you didn't listen 
when we all told you that this would backfire because abortion is an issue with broad public support. And maybe women don't like that a bunch of male lawmakers are reducing them to second-class citizenship status when they have no idea how reproduction even works. Like they've demonstrated how ignorant they are on basic human anatomy. And for them to construct these laws that affect women in a profound way, of course there's backlash, of course women are pissed. And if they're scared, they should be. Because there is a direct correlation between the Dobbs decision and women registering to vote. For example, this Washington Post maps out voter registration among women throughout the year. And as you can see, there was a huge spike in Kansas, at least, after the draft opinion leaked. But after the Dobbs decision was announced, you see massive spikes in all three states accounted for here, with women accounting for 70% of new registrations in Kansas, over 60% in Pennsylvania, and women accounting for 55% of new registrations in Florida. I mean, this is a horrible sign for the GOP. Women were galvanized by this ruling and Republicans made matters worse by leaning into it. And now they're having to backpedal. And as the article laid out, some GOP candidates, you know, they try to stake their claim on this issue, let it be known that they are extremist forced, uh, forced birthers. Blake Masters, for example, he stated that he wanted a federal personhood law or ideally a constitutional amendment which would ban abortion nationwide. So what happened now? Well, he had to scrub his website of references to his formerly extremist views on abortion, and now all he talks about is late-term abortion and the Hyde Amendment. That's quite the turnaround, is it not? And I actually have a more in-depth uh, video coming out in a couple of days, so definitely check that out. But how are other Republicans dealing with this? Well, some of them are kind of just admitting it, like Marco Rubio, for example, he's saying he supports abortion bans, so he's defiant, but at least he's admitting now that his position is not the majority position. Now, others like Tom Emmer, who is the chair of the NRCC, is just shrugging off polls, insisting that abortion is less salient than other issues. And not only is he denying that this issue is really important to people, but this is what he said on Fox News with a straight face in response to polls showing how bad they're doing um, about the Democratic Party's attempt to codify Roe v. Wade. Take a look. Uh, good luck to them trying to defend their extreme position. Every one of them voted for what I call the Chinese genocide bill, which would allow abortion up to moments before a child takes its first breath. I think uh, our candidates know how to message that and they'll be just fine in the midterms. I would say that they lost their credibility six years ago with the Russian collusion hoax. And while they're doing all this, Hunter Biden is still out there being able to peddle influence all around the world, and they do nothing to him. Americans are pissed off about that. They're going to show up in November, and Democrats are going to answer for it. Oh, please, I am begging you, please fixate on Hunter Biden. I promise you, it's going to go great for you. Please do that, Republicans. That would be incredible. Now, look, Republicans here and there... They can they can fuck up, right? They can shrug this off. But if you are the chair of the NRCC, you've got to look at these polls and you've got to take them seriously. But Tom Emmer sees this iceberg dead ahead and he's like, it's fine. All right, you're wrong, but I want you to keep it up with this particular position. Keep shrugging it off so that way you have this wake up call, hopefully a brutal wake-up call come November. Now, I want to get more into how Republicans are trotting out their wives because this, it just shows you 
how desperate they are. And it speaks to how dishonest and fake these politicians are. So back to the Politico article. In August, Republican Senate nominees in top battleground states began to bring female family members on screen to vouch for them. The male GOP candidates in Ohio, Arizona, Nevada, and Colorado had their wives speak directly to the camera about their character, while the Republican woman trying to flip a Senate seat in Washington has released two direct-to-camera ads in the last two weeks designed to convey nuance on abortion. In Ohio, J.D. Vance's wife, Usha, sat at a kitchen table talking about Vance's hardships as a child and being raised by his grandmother. Nevada GOP nominee Adam Lixalt's wife, Jamie, sat next to him on a sofa as they talked about his difficult childhood. The ad shows photos of a young Laxalt and his single mother. And Celeste O'Day, the wife of Colorado GOP Senate nominee Joe O'Day, was the latest spouse to be featured in the series of Republican ads. The spot launched just days after O'Day's campaign released a digital video featuring his adult daughter, discussing her father's support for abortion rights, access to contraception, and same-sex marriage. Quote, our problem is particularly white, middle-aged women, said a Republican working on Senate races who spoke on the condition of anonymity to discuss internal data. Quote, we need to soften our guys. And softening the image of Republican men is exactly what they're trying to do. So I just want to give you a couple of examples here. Here's two ads uh, showing the way that they're trying to soften the image uh, images of these forced brother candidates by trotting out their wives and like showing them all happy with their family. Because how could you be a monster if you're happy with your family? Take a look. Our family story is an Ohio story. My husband JD grew up in Middletown and things weren't easy. JD shared his family's story when he wrote Hillbilly Elegy and he wants for Ohio what Ohio gave him, a fighting chance. Every day I see families that are struggling. As a dad and as attorney general, Adam is a protector. Victims of abuse, assault, human trafficking, opioids. The system failed them. I had to do something. Adam always fights for what's right. This is about all our children and the future of their country. That's why he's running for Senate. Nevada families need someone to fight for them. I'm Adam Laxell, and I approve this message. Well, there you have it. They have wives, so they don't hate women. If you hated women, you wouldn't have a wife. So, gotcha. I mean, it's so fake, so phony. The second that the polls change, this is what they do. In a desperate attempt to pander to women, they trot out their wives. And understand how patronizing this is. This is an insult to the intelligence of women around the country. Do they honestly believe that women are that stupid? Where women are just going to be like, well, you know, I really like having the freedom to make decisions about my own health care. But then I saw J.D. Vance's wife and I just thought, okay, he's also holding the baby. I guess I can forgive him over him restricting my right as an American citizen. I mean, who's going to who's going to fall for this? This is how desperate they are, though, where they can't really win on the substance. So they have to aesthetically try to pander to women by saying, look, I'm with a woman. She seems pretty satisfied with me. Uh, uh. Well, <laughs> I love that they're in this position. I love it. Republicans are backed into a corner. They were so loud letting their freak flag fly, talking about how they want to subject all women across the country in all 50 states to their first forced birther agenda. And now just months later, they see how that backfired and a majority of women in some states, battleground states, key states, are in droves registering to vote, pissed off at what the Republican Party did. Now, to be clear, the Supreme Court did this, but this was pushed for by the GOP for the last 50 fucking years. 
So this is a disaster potentially of their own making. I just hope that this momentum continues and women everywhere come out in droves to stick it to these Republicans who thought that they could get away with making women second-class citizens by turning back the clock 50 years. I really hope that they suffer the consequences electorally. And it seems like even if, you know, um, that's not a guarantee at this point in time, I mean, just to see them squirm like this, love to see it. I absolutely love to see it. So there you have it. Well, as I've been saying a lot lately, democracy in the United States may not be long for this world. And certainly if it survives, it will go through a very rocky period over the course of the next couple of years. And the midterm elections are going to, I think, test how strong American institutions are and whether or not democracy can be protected by these institutions when you have a number of people who are trying to tear it apart from within. But before we get to the really horrifying news, I want to first start out with some hopium, because the very first insurrectionist who stormed the Capitol on January 6th is facing political consequences, not jail time, but political consequences, and they're being removed from office. I'm, of course, talking about Coy Griffin, the founder of Cowboys for Trump. And as HuffPost reports, a New Mexico judge has ordered a Donald Trump-supporting county official to be immediately removed and barred from office for participating in the deadly Capitol insurrection on January 6, 2021. In his ruling on Tuesday, District Judge Francis Matthews said that Otero County Commissioner and Cowboys for Trump founder Coy Griffin is disqualified from holding office under the 14th Amendment because he engaged in the insurrection after taking an oath to support the Constitution as an executive officer of the state. Now, this is a really big deal because the last time that somebody was actually removed from office under the Constitution's insurrection-related clauses was 1869. And, you know, at some point, you'd think that somebody would face some political ramifications for participating in the January 6th insurrection. Marjorie Greene didn't. So far, Trump hasn't. But this individual who's currently holding office, he's out. Now, he was really let off easy up until now because he got arrested on January 17th, convicted in March, and he was sentenced to just 14 days, 14 days in jail and um, a $3,000 fine. All this after storming the Capitol, bringing guns and ammunition, calling for war. He got 14 days in jail and a $3,000 fine. And this is a sitting public official. So the fact that he's now barred from running for office, that is really important. However, here's where we get to the bad news. He's just the tip of the iceberg. If we were to bar every single insurrectionist and charge all of them, like bar all of them from running from, for office and charge all of them with crimes, that still wouldn't necessarily protect democracy from election truthers because 538 just released a report and what they found is genuinely astonishing. More than one in two Americans will have an election denier on the ballot this fall. Now, we're going to dive into the details here, but this doesn't necessarily mean that most of these election deniers will win, but enough of them will win to sufficiently change the composition of the Republican Party, at least in the House of Representatives. And now we're going to have one of two parties effectively be hostile to the very simple notion of democracy. So let's get to the breakdown here. So out of 529 GOP primary winners, 
195 are full-blown 2020 election truthers who either falsely claimed that the election was stolen from Trump or they tried to overturn the election themselves by taking action to do just that, by either voting or not voting rather to certify the results or joining lawsuits intended to overturn the election. Now, an additional 61 have concern trolled about the election, either questioning its integrity or refusing to state whether or not they believe that the election was legitimate. Another 17 just refused to answer a question about it when they were asked, and 98 didn't have comments, which implies that they're possibly riding the fence or deliberately trying to avoid stating their position because it could be unpopular within the GOP's base, which is a problem. And now here's the total breakdown. So just 30% of Republicans running for office who won their GOP primaries either fully accepted the results of the 2020 election or they accept it with some reservations. Now, here's where the data gets really disturbing. In the House, 126 election deniers and doubters are poised to win their House races. Now, in the Senate, at a minimum, three election deniers seem poised to win. And when it comes to governor's races, six election deniers and doubters are either poised to win or they have a great shot at actually winning. Individuals like Carrie Lake out of Arizona. Now, I'll link you to their page where you can look at the data in your own state. This is my state of Oregon. Now, as you can see here, it looks a little bit better because the election deniers that we have that won their GOP primaries, they have a very small chance of winning, but that's not necessarily the case in all states. And currently, as it stands now, this could change, but Republicans are poised to take back the House. So we're gonna have one branch of Congress be dominated by election deniers who have power. There's a lot that they can do to put their election denialism into practice. They could impeach Biden for claiming that he stole the election. They can conduct investigations, form special committees to investigate election fraud. There's a lot that they can do. And even if they fail at all of these things on a practical level, they can still elevate the salience of this issue by focusing on this since all of them believe it. Now, I don't necessarily know if they're just pandering to the GOP's base and they don't really believe this. It doesn't matter though. It's a distinction without a difference because we have a lot of election truthers who are going to Congress. That's something that is a definite possibility, is, is a reality. And we have to grapple with that as a society. What do we do? If they didn't participate in the insurrection, then there's not really a way to bar them from running for Congress short of passing laws saying you are disqualified from running running for office if you, you know, are, are an election truther or something like that. The constitutionality of a law like that would be dubious, right? So there's really nothing you can do. You can hold all of the January 6th insurrectionists like Coy Griffin accountable, but that's not going to stop all of these election truthers from taking power and that right there is the thing that we're grappling with as a country what do we do about this can we try to educate them that doesn't really seem to work because their minds are riddled with conspiracy theories do we try to educate the gop's base well that's difficult too because they are plugged into fox news newsmax and they're getting co constant misinformation so what do we do and there's no easy answers. We can't make a difference on a micro level. Changes have to be made. Societal changes have to be made on the macro level. But certainly, I think that we should start by talking to our family members who deny the results of the election. But either way, a wave of election truthers is going to flood Congress. And what does that mean for the long-term health of democracy? I don't know. 
but it seems bad if you ask me. So unsurprisingly, Republican governors across the country are continuing to use children as political punching bags, specifically LGBTQ plus children, trans children. And I want to talk about two governors in particular. We'll focus on Glenn Youngkin here in a moment. But first, I want to look at Texas, because earlier this year, I talked about how damaging it was for Texas to designate all parents who seek out gender affirming care for their trans children as child abusers. And now they're investigating parents who seek out gender affirming care as just that, as child abusers. Now, at the time, we can only speculate what this could lead to. At a minimum, these parents are being terrorized by the state. But at worst, this could literally lead to state-sanctioned kidnapping of trans children where they're, taking, uh, where they're taken out of these loving homes and they're placed with foster care parents who are not affirming of their trans identity that forced them to detransition. And psychologically, the damage that this would do to these trans kids would be irreparable. Now, to my knowledge, that hasn't happened yet, but there are many families who are under investigation. And I've talked about the effect that this has on families in Texas, but I want to talk about the effect that this has on its protection agencies, specifically for children, because it's not good. So as Dallas News reports, continuing to investigate the parents of transgender youth could put Texas's child protection agency over the brink of collapse, a group of its staffers said in a new court filing. In an August 25th brief filed with the Austin Appeals Court, 16 current and former employees at the Department of Family and Protective Services said there has been an exodus from the agency that could hamper its ability to perform basic and necessary functions. They urged the court to keep the abuse investigations on hold while the policy continues to be litigated. As career DFPS employees, they wrote to respectfully advise the court that DFPS is on the brink of collapse and that the politically motivated decision to compel DFPS employees like themselves to investigate non-abusive, loving, and supportive families who merely rely in good faith on their doctor's advice would put DFPS over that brink. The great mass of DFPS employees did not choose the child welfare profession to break up loving families who, with no ill motive, malice, or negligence toward their child, are simply following medical advice and administering medicine under a doctor's supervision, they added. So that was all caused by one politically motivated decision, this mass exodus that is hindering the DFPS from performing basic functions. Now, what are the implications of this? Children who are in abusive homes, they don't get the attention that they need because now they're overburdened with all of this since many staffers are resigning and the ones who are left, they have increased work loans because of this dumb transphobic policy. So children who are actually in real abusive situations, they could be harmed because of this policy. So do you understand? Cis kids may actually be harmed as a result of this anti-trans policy. Now, the reason why I bring that up is because these lawmakers, they don't care about trans kids, but they do care about cis kids, the straight ones anyways. So perhaps once they realize the damage that they're doing to DFPS and how they are effectively helping to keep kids in violent, unstable situations, bad households, well, maybe then they'll reverse it once they realize they're hurting cis kids. It's sad that we have to like rely on their sympathy for cis kids and not see the effect that they're having on trans kids. But that's kind of where we're at. We're desperate and anything that will stop this horrible policy is going to be welcomed. But yeah, this is how these anti-trans policies sometimes do have unintended consequences. You think that you're targeting just trans kids, but no, now you're targeting all kinds of kids. 
cis kids as well. And it's the same thing with regard to puberty blockers. Like these are things that a trans uh, young person can get with the consent of their parent and doctor. And the right has been hysterical over this, right? Because they don't necessarily know about gender affirming care. They're ignorant. So they say, oh my God, these puberty blockers are so terrible and they want to restrict access to people under 18, not knowing that puberty blockers are also given to cis girls to prevent them from developing too soon, to prevent them from getting their periods at such young ages. But they don't get it. And they try to create these arguments based out of fear. Oh my God, puberty blockers. We don't know the long-term effects. We don't know the side effects. And these are all things that are taken into account whenever you give your children medicine. Like when I was a young man, my parents got me on Prozac because, because I had obsessive compulsive disorder. Like, of course, there were side effects, but my parents made that decision. They had the autonomy to make that decision in concert with my doctor. But what these conservatives want to do is they want to be the parents. So it's despicable, but I don't actually think that this is very surprising. I mean, the fact that DFPS is on the brink of collapse, they should have anticipated this because these people, believe it or not, they are in this field probably because they want to help family uh, families. I'm sure there's some people who are bad actors, but like I have a family member who is within this field. She's a social worker and she does this out of a passion for helping people, out of a passion for children. And if she were placed in this position, I don't know that she would want that job. So I, I visualize, you know, other people in this predicament where they're forced to investigate families as child abusers for doing the horrible thing of seeking out gender affirming care for their children, talking to a doctor, and it's just, it's sick. Now, there are other ways that governors are trying to harm trans children. For example, Glenn Youngkin called on school officials to essentially out trans children. Now, if you don't know why that would be really devastating, I'll explain in a moment, but let's get to the article here. John Russell of LGBTQ Nation explains, Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin called on school officials to out transgender and gender nonconforming students. Speaking at a Parents Matter rally on Wednesday, Youngkin criticized Fairfax County Public Schools Regulation 2603, which allows students to use pronouns, restrooms, and other facilities at the school that correspond with their gender identity and does not require school officials to notify parents of students' transition. They think that parents have no right to know what your child is discussing with their teacher or their counselor, Youngkin said, particularly when some of the most important topics, most important topics that a child may want to discuss are being determined. What's their name? What pronoun will they use? How are they going to express their gender? This is a decision that bureaucrats in Fairfax County believe that they should be able to make without telling the parents, the governor continued. Now, keep in mind that he got elected off of the whole CRT hysteria, so it's not really surprising that he's taking up the whole don't say gay mantle thing, or he's at least adjacent to that movement, if you want to call it that. But if he were to actually enforce this by law, it would be a disaster because trans kids who don't come out to their parents, it's for good reason. Oftentimes, they're not comfortable, not ready to come out, or because they're living in a hostile environment. So if they were to come out, they could be in danger. Their parents could abuse them. Their parents could kick them out. When I was a teenager, you know, I didn't want to come out, but my thought was if my, you know, dad ever found out that I was gay some way, then I would be kicked out. I'd be on the streets like that. Now, thankfully, you know, he never kicked me out. He ended up accepting me, but that isn't the story of every single LGBTQ plus child. So if teachers were actually in a position where they're forced to out their students after previously being safe people to come out to, like this is 
literally endangering the lives of these students. Studies show that having just one accepting person in the household drastically improves their well-being, their mental well-being, decreases, you know, suicidal ideation and whatnot. So to force trans children into this predicament would be a complete disaster. But this is what Republicans are doing. They don't know how to appeal to voters, so what they're doing is just fear-mongering about trans people. And they're focusing on trans kids. Now, I always say that you should never punch down on marginalized communities, but they're focusing on children, the most vulnerable, the most innocent in our society. And that is a special kind of evil. So this is what we have to deal with. And anytime you have a state that is potentially floating something like this, you know, does what Texas did or calls on teachers to out superintendents. It's really incumbent on all of us who are allies to push back as forcefully as we possibly can, because I kid you not, these are policies that kill LGBTQ plus people and we can't let them stand so these sick fucks can get, you know, a couple more political points before the November midterms. Unacceptable. Want more? Visit humanistreport.com for links to our full catalog of videos on YouTube, Means TV, and Facebook. You can also find audio versions of the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, and other major podcast platforms. And before you go, consider supporting the show on Patreon or through YouTube memberships. You'll get early access to most videos, invites to monthly live chats with Mike, and you'll be thanked by name at the start of the next episode. There are other ways to support the show. You can like, subscribe, turn on notifications, and share our content on social media. Thank you for watching.